0: Welcome to the Truth Doctor podcast hosted by Dr. Courtney Tracy. In each thought-provoking episode, Dr. Tracy cuts through the bullshit and dives into the mental health of her guests to help you better understand your own mind. This podcast is made in collaboration with Dive Through, a mental wellness company
1: welcome back to the truth doctor podcast my name is dr courtney tracy you know me on the internet and social media as the truth doctor and i have a special guest like usual every tuesday here for you today Just a reminder that when you are listening to this episode, listen for something that resonates with you a question that I ask my guests that you wish that I asked you, or the answer that my guests provided that you wish someone in your life could hear. Once you hear that, take a screenshot of it, put it on social media, tagging both myself at the period truth, period doctor and this podcast at Truth Doctor Show, as well as our guest, and she will share her handles towards the end of the episode. Say it with me if you know it by now. The more people who hear these truth messages, the more the world is getting better, a little at a time. Now, let me introduce to you my guest today. Her name is Rachel Brady, and she describes herself as a former LA party girl that became sick of her own self-sabotage and decided to take charge of her own narrative. Rachel made it her mission to raise awareness around sober life through her social media. She hosts a blog slash Instagram account called Shots to Shakes, um, musings of a retired blackout artist, and hosts a podcast called After the Blackout, a one-woman show that navigates sobriety, mental health, and facing the things we drink to forget about. Rachel blogs about mental health, fitness, and her sobriety journey for others looking to become their own hero. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel. How are you today?
0: I am good. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so weird to hear my bio being read out because I'm just like, oh, me? little old me. (laughs) (laughs) I totally
1: understand. I am honored to have you on this podcast today. I don't know what you know about me, but I am a rehab owner. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been working in the rehab industry for coming up on eight years now. Um, And addiction addiction is huge. That's Mm -hmm. primarily what I've treated for most of my career. That stuff I've experienced in my family and myself personally, and I haven't had someone on this show to talk about addiction yet. So, Oh, wow. Well, I'm honored to be the first person. Thank you. Uh, so I went ahead, and it seems like this is a pattern of mine at this point. When I'm getting ready for filming these episodes, I... Listen to whatever's available on the internet for by mm-hmm. my upcoming guests. So I listened to the first episode of your podcast where you described your background, your story in fifteen minutes or less. And it was so similar to my story, but I want you to share yours. There's something that you mentioned in it mm-hmm. prior to when you started drinking. Mm-hmm. And the theme was hyper-awareness of not being good enough and wanting to be perfect, which lent you to resentment. So walk me and our guests or our, and our listeners a little bit through that. What were you hyper-aware of? Why? And why did you start to resent that?
0: Yeah, no, that's a huge part of my story, especially because I kind of felt that outsider perspective since literally I can remember, like since kindergarten at least. And it was always this thing of believing that if I looked right, if I acted right, if I said all the things that other kids were saying, then of course they would have to accept me. It's kind of like this sort of logical thing of X plus Y equals Z, then, you know, all that stuff. So for a really long time, I think I, kind of did everything under the veil of perfectionism because, you know, if you think, okay, well, as long as I look perfect, act perfect, whatever, then I will minimize the risk of being critiqued or being judged or all that because, um, it just was a huge defense mechanism for me. So when I started to go to high school, um, I still was kind of operating under that, but that's when I started to realize it really wasn't getting me anywhere. And I started to become really resentful of it. So, when I would see my peers, you know, partying, all this stuff, doing teenage things, I wasn't allowed to do any of that. I was super sheltered. Um, I wasn't allowed to go out or drink or anything. So naturally with, you know, the already just the teenage rebellion aspect. I also kind of had that thing of, I've been trying to be perfect my whole life to impress these people and it's not even working. So it almost kind of made me resentful. Like you were saying of, you know, why am I even doing this? Like, what's the point? So when I got to college, I went to college about a few hours away from my house. So that was the first time I had like no supervision, no quote rules, even though there were rules, obviously, but that was the, um, definitely the starting point of kind of letting perfectionism become a resentment and having it, it was really weird because it was still guiding so many of my decisions and kind of keeping me in this cycle of self-sabotage. But at the same time, the resentment of it made me just completely engage in all these self-destructive behaviors. So it was really interesting. And yeah, even before I took my first drink, I definitely struggled with just feeling like an outsider, feeling like someone, everyone else received this like social, social manual that I never did. Like there were all these social rules that I just didn't happen to understand. I missed the memo. I missed a meeting somewhere. (laughs) Um, so yeah, in terms of perfectionism becoming a resentment, that was a huge, um, kind of just contributing factor to when I did start to go into addiction.
1: Yeah, definitely. What, where do you think the perfectionism came from?
0: Um, well, a lot of it came from uh, being very good at school. So I definitely based a lot of my worth in being good at school, being able to please adults and teachers and my parents, because for a long time, I always kind of attributed morality and goodness with worthiness so you know if you're being a good girl if you're getting good grades and doing all this then you have nothing to worry about you are a quote good person and so for me i was very um very smart little girl so for me i was like okay this is my ticket in like this is my way that i'm going to move through this world you know Mm -hmm. as long as i have all these academic achievements as long as i'm doing you know all this stuff then who cares if I'm getting bullied? You know what I mean? Because at least I have proof on paper that I'm doing something right. And it was really interesting because I actually just recently got got diagnosed with ADHD. And it was this kind of aha moment, because for one thing, it kind of explained why I just kind of felt just different from everyone for such a long time, but I wasn't able to explain it. And I also was doing a lot of reading how, um, you know, when we're younger, a lot of, you know people tend to internalize their symptoms, especially little girls, and mm. how it's not the stereotypical, you know, disruptive in class or being easily distracted. Um, so for me, I was able to do all the schoolwork and stuff. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm chilling, but explained a lot. And it's actually a really important part of my recovery right now is just kind of coming to terms with, okay, how did my ADHD affect, you know, how I was socialized, how it, Um, led me to some self-destructive behaviors, those sort of things.
1: Yeah. When it came to the perfectionistic behaviors in your childhood and throughout high school, were you praised for those perfectionist behaviors? Like, do you think there was an external motivation to keep doing that? Or do you think you just learned it internally and, and stuck with it?
0: Honestly, a mixture of both. Like I definitely had a lot of external praise. Um, obviously, you know, when you're a teenager or just a student general, teachers and parents obviously reward good behavior. Um yeah. so that was definitely a big part of it. But I definitely had a lot of internalized perfectionism as well, just because, like I said, that was kind of how I learned to earn my worth in this world. So yeah. even if other People were saying, hey, like you're really hard on yourself. Even like when I was in middle school, people would always say, You're really hard on yourself, like you're okay. Mm. I still would have that. No, I need to do this because if I don't, I am gonna just crumble and fall. Like I was so scared of what would happen if I just let myself be okay. Um, yeah. not perfect, but just okay. So A lot of it was definitely the um, external praise that definitely helped perpetuate it. But at the same time, by that point, it was a lot of internalized perfectionism. So even if people were telling me like, hey, you're fine, I would still just something in me was like, nope. mm -mm." (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: really interesting. And I think, you know, I I, want to get into obviously what it was like for you to start drinking for the first Mm -hmm. time. A question that's coming up for me before we do that is what were you afraid of like being, being okay versus being perfect? Like what, what did you think was going to happen? Was there someone that wasn't perfect? You're like, I don't want to be like them. Like, or was it something else? Like what, what was the fear attached
0: to? I think a lot for me was that I'd received so much praise for being good in school and all that, that I felt that if that was taken away from me, there'd be nothing left so like I said before, mm. a lot of my worth was based in academic success. So even though I might have had other qualities about myself that were great, I still had that fear of if I don't you know, show this a game, so to speak, then yeah. when you take that away, there's not going to be anything left. There's not going to be any substance left.
1: Got it. So you were just always putting out those perfectionistic behaviors. And so your environment... Never really got the opportunity to praise the other aspects of you because you were just always outputting the academics. And so you didn't really have exposure to validation for other things, but not because you wouldn't have gotten it, just because it didn't work out that way. Exactly. That makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. How old were you when you? took your first drink of alcohol ever,
0: not, not got drunk. Your first drink of alcohol ever. Oh my gosh. Um, I, Oh, it just came back to me. So it was seventh grade. So I was like 13 or 12 or something. And it was so funny because I, it's completely coming back to me. So we were at a friend's sleepover and I went to a very small prep middle school. So like 30 kids in my graduating class and they had all grown up together. Um, so it was extremely clicky and I was a new kid. So I was like, already being bullied already. But I was just like, I need to do anything it takes to make these girls like me. Mm. Um, And I remember we were at a sleepover and their parents went to bed And they just kind of had this look on their face, like, oh, it's about to go down. I'm all, what? Like, I was so innocent. (laughs) And they pulled one single Heineken out of the fridge, a single Heineken. And we (laughs) all went into the laundry room, and we're all passing it around, taking sips. So that was our first time drinking alcohol in itself. And of course, we're all acting like we're tipsy, even though we only had a sip of beer, because you have to do that. (laughs) Um, But that was the first time. So funnily enough, it really didn't... um, spark an immediate physical reaction. Oh, I like this. That was the first time I actually got drunk. That was when that, you know, it was like, Oh, I like this. Um, but yeah, when it came to my first sip of alcohol, it was so, so innocent. Um, and so just one of those things where it really showed how much, um, investment I had into trying to make these other girls like me. Yeah. That's such a typical like
1: experience, especially for females is like in any type of peer group it's like oh if they're going to drink i'm going to drink and i'm going to go along with it and so it's just interesting that that's part of your story as well
0: and you said that was 7th grade yeah so it was it was funny because i you know you always see these like anti drug or you know you're going to get peer pressured and i thought like oh that's high school stuff so when they did that my first thought was already we're doing this already Like we're 12 or 13, like, can we, at least wait till our high school, but it was just one of those things where it was just like, oh, I guess this is happening. Okay. Like, here we go. (laughs) Right.
1: How many years, what happened after that? Was there still mild experimentation? So tell me about between your first sip of Heineken and the buzz (sighs) that you got along with that. And then your first
0: drunk, what did it look, what did it look like in between? Yeah. So. Between that, I actually was a very um, serious athlete. So I played volleyball for about eight years and it took about 98% of my social life. So for that most part, I really didn't have any chance to experiment just because I was always at practice or games or I was just tired because I had school too. So I didn't have my first drunk until my sophomore year of high school. So I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and by that point I didn't drink in between that just because I literally didn't have time, but I still Mm. had that notion of, I still want to fit in. I still want to, you know, just go with the flow, whatever's going to make me liked in high school. I was like, I'll do it. I don't care. So that was my first drunk. And I ended up chugging six cosmopolitans (laughs) because we were at a New Year's Eve party and, um, the hostess or the host mom was making, you know, whatever. And I was just like, I'm just going to take one and just go in the bathroom and chug it and ended up getting, you know, just completely trashed, throwing up everywhere, you know, just awful. Um, But I just, I distinctly remember thinking I can shut my brain off because I was kind of just going, my mind was a million miles a minute. Even when I was a little kid, um, my mind has always been super, super, just go, go, go. And that was the first time I ever felt like, oh, I can actually like feel numb. And this is fantastic. Um, So even though the drinking in itself was just completely red flag, I still, that was, I think the first kind of click for me was like, oh, like, this is nice. You know, I could actually, I could totally pursue this feeling and um, just learn how to, you know, quote, control it. So that was the first time it kind of clicked for me. I love that you described
1: the lure that Mm -hmm. you experienced, because I feel like people, how do anyone listening that is thinking, I I drink to numb my difficult emotions, but Mm -hmm. like, it's not a problem. And so I'm wondering if you could go back to that, Rachel, Sophomore year of high school, and who's saying who's coming to the realization that she can numb herself with her with a substance with alcohol. What would you say to her about
0: that numbing experience? Oh, that's a great question. Honestly, it's tough because you know obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and you know we can go back to our teenage self and be like, hey, don't do <laughs> this, or like you're gonna ruin your life. But yeah. of course, you know we'll kind of act like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But really, the thing mm-hmm. I would say is that there is nothing wrong with doing things that other people might find quote unpopular or, Mm. you know, just because for me, a big thing, and especially when I got to college and was drinking um, regularly is I had a ton of cognitive dissonance. So I would, you know, get way too drunk to all these silly things and just have this feeling of self-loathing. Like this isn't me, this isn't right. This isn't, like this isn't, this is, I had a bad feeling about it, but I was still both physically addicted because um, alcohol yeah. is an addictive substance and just addicted to the feeling of belonging. I think that was the biggest thing was addicted to the feeling of just social approval. And it was really tough, especially when you go to a fairly small school, the social circle is very tight. So it's one of those mm-hmm. things where you feel like you don't have that those many options. Um, but there is, So much I could say to teenage Rachel, but I think the biggest thing I would say is to not discount the inner voice because there are so many times where I distinctly remember having so much, um, like I said, cognitive dissonance and just not learning to trust myself because even when I was in high school, I actually had a relationship that gaslit me a lot. That was the first time I really felt gaslit and just felt like I couldn't even trust my own judgment So I think that was a huge contribution to kind of just feeling like, oh, no, you're just being silly, like you're overreacting, you're being dramatic, you know, this is what people do, and you just have to catch up with the times. So that's, that's something that's coming to mind for me right now.
1: Yeah, I love that you would tell your younger self really like, part of what the cause was of your of that first that first blackout or maybe did did you black out that time sophomore year
0: i i browned out so Got i it. kind of bits and pieces but yeah for the most yeah. part i i remember the the aftermath the throwing up and just feeling like mm. super out of control but the um in between that it's pretty blurry
1: yeah <laughs> okay so well for, for clarity for the listeners a blackout is when you you don't remember shit about mm-hmm. what happened. The whole memory is black. A brown out is when you remember bits and pieces of what's going on. It's not as uh, blank as mm-hmm. it would be if you had a full blackout. And that's sort of just, I guess you wouldn't really know those terms unless you work in addiction or you've been addicted and you've had those types of experiences or know someone that has. So just for clarity for the listeners, mm-hmm. uh, I love that you that you would tell yourself the thing that you really needed to hear at that age the thing that would have prevented you from drinking because other people were drinking and to not not quiet that inner voice and to be able to do things that other people aren't doing. And I'm sure that's part of your recovery story today is acknowledging that for yourself. And we'll get into that. So you had this experience when you were a sophomore in high school. What did the progression of those experiences look like? When did the time between them lessen? When did the alcohol use start increasing like, What did it look like when it started getting bad and why did it start getting bad?
0: Yeah. So honestly, in high school, I can only remember a few times, like I probably could count on one hand the amount of times I got drunk when I was in high school, but funnily enough, all of them were very similar where it's just, I would pound drinks um, just because I didn't know when I was going to get the next chance. Cause like I said, I was super sheltered. So whenever I did have an opportunity to get drunk, I was like, I'm going to use this to its full advantage. I'm going to do maximum effort. Um, So I learned from a very early time on, like, you don't drink to leisurely enjoy it, you drink to get drunk, and you drink to get drunk as fast as possible. Um, So obviously, when you're, you know, a teenager, and you're just pounding down shots, it's not going to go well. Um, So that was a very, thankfully, it kind of discouraged me from doing it as much, because I think if I had, quote, a good time each time, I would have definitely tried to push the envelope a little bit more. Um, but the window of time definitely closed after I graduated high school. Um, because by that point I was like, you know, what, screw you all. I didn't have a really good time in high school. So I was like, fuck you all. I'm going to just go to college, live my life and, you know, do all the things that I couldn't do in high school pretty much. Yeah. So the summer between my senior year of high school, and my freshman year of college, that's when it really started to turn up. And I definitely. Remember that there was so many times where all this just drama and destruction would happen. And I just blamed it all on bad luck. I was like, "I'm drinking, and just some bullshit happens to happen right next to it. I didn't get the the uh, relationship between it just yet. But it was one of those things where I was like, no, 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 I became like very protective of my of my drinking from a very, very early on time on. And it's so easy when you're, you know, 18, 19 saying, you know, I'm just having fun. I'm just doing my thing. And honestly, by that point, I don't think I was at the quote addicted part yet. I think I was more in the recreational stage, but there were definitely a lot of warning signs where it came to just how eager I was to drink and how irritable I would be if I couldn't drink. Um, So, yeah, that was definitely the time where it started to kind of, uh, become a regular thing. Your story is so
1: similar to mine. I love that you're sharing sharing it. Except I probably blacked out every weekend in high school for the whole whole four years. Ended up, you know, fuck ton of other drugs also. But I, you know, I didn't have, I was not sports inclined. I was not academically inclined. So I was like, well, I guess my thing is being drug inclined. So I'm just going (laughs) to roll with that one.
0: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: I really like that you said that that you were having like you know these intermittent experiences of browning out or getting really drunk and getting sick in high school but that you weren't addicted at that point and that's a really good thing to differentiate it's like there were signs that your body could get you to be addicted there were signs that your mind could get you to be addicted but but there wasn't an awareness it sounds like that that's what was happening or could happen it's like a lack of like just a lack of understanding it, because nobody teaches us, like, and yeah. we hide it. We hide it because we're like, "fuck, we're not supposed to be doing this." So, like, there's no adults to be like, "oh, this is what's going on for you." So, college, mm-hmm.
0: college, oh. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh my god,
0: it's that like, happens. That was a thing.
1: Yeah, right. And it's <laughs> like, I mean, I think it. I think really, college breeds so many people with alcohol and substance use problems. And there's so many different backgrounds, like either people that have had a sheltered upbringing or people that have had what they would consider a terrible upbringing. It's like, it's almost not about your upbringing. It's about like, what do you know about alcohol and drug use when you get to college? Like about how it affects the body and the mind so that you can make appropriate choices. So knowing that that wasn't there and that you went into college, like many of us do. When did it get really bad and what was your first experience with the idea that I have to do something about this treatment therapy, stopping. And what, what did it look like the first time?
0: Yeah, no, it was, it was such a gradual process. And that's the thing I really like to tell people that might not understand addiction is like, you don't wake up one day completely sober, be like, I'm a shoot of heroin. I just feel like it. Like it's so such a slow burn for so many people. And it's one of those things that unless you have either someone looking out for you or you're having quote really bad things happen to you, um, it's it's very easy to not realize that your behaviors and your lifestyle pretty much can be um, a huge proponent of substance use. So for me, um, I kind of freshman year of college was the phase of you know just being a freshman, just drinking all the time and getting super drunk um and i kind of i kind of say that was for recreational use um as well so i i uh excuse me i chop it up into three pieces so the first phase was drinking for recreation and i think that's where a lot of people either stay or they start with where it's like oh i'm just you know i'm just a college kid doing college things um which was really fun. But there were some red flags where I would always, like I said, be the one getting in trouble. Uh, My first year of freshman year, like my first ever day of college, I got written up twice by two RAs in one night. And I was (laughs) like, oh, this is awful luck, even though I was just completely being me. Um, So that happened. And I think the first turning point was my uh, first college boyfriend breaking up with me. That was a huge gut punch, especially because by that point I had such a complicated relationship with men and seeking male validation. So it was just kind of like a pierce to the heart where I was like, I wasn't good enough for this person. Mm-hmm. And um honestly, a lot of it in hindsight was probably because of the way I was drinking. Um, because it was very drama induced. And I do take responsibility for that, but it just crushed me. So I think that was the first time. I really started to act out and do that via drinking um Mm -hmm. so when that happened um going just my sophomore year that's when i really started to kind of just be a spectacle almost and i remember my friends sitting me down kind of like a mini intervention saying hey like we know that you're heartbroken but this is this is a lot and we think we should you should go to therapy and by that point i really didn't have that much, um, exposure to therapy. I thought it was there. I thought therapy was a place you go when you have like a really bad problem or you're really just, it was like a last, last resort sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I was like, Oh my God, I screwed up so bad. I have to go to therapy. <laughs> like, Oh my <laughs> God, just so dramatic. Um, but that was my first exposure to therapy and it was fantastic. Um, thankfully I had a really, really good therapist and, Even though by that point, we still were focused on moderation of drinking um, because, you know, when you're a college kid, it's easy to say like, hey, like I'm not an alcoholic. I just am partying and I just need to need to like tone it down. So that was my first um, kind of phase, I guess. And then that breakup sort of led to the second phase, which I call drinking to cope. Um, Mm. So when all throughout sophomore year was just total shit show um I could write a book on it probably will um (laughs) and uh that was definitely the time where a lot of more red flags are pop up so I would start drinking in secret I would lie about how much I drink if I got cut cut off at a frat party I would somehow sneak a shot in the bathroom or something like that um so it was very much like the the signs were starting to show the cracks were starting to show and then um junior year I studied abroad and was assaulted So that was the kind of turning point, I think, of drinking to survive, I call it, Mm. where the trauma just completely eradicated any rational thought that was left for me. Um, And that was kind of the time where it got super scary, because by that point, I knew that my drinking was very problematic. But it literally felt like if I didn't drink, then I would just I didn't know what would happen. Just that unknown feeling of like, I know that this isn't good for me, but I don't know what other option I have left. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were times where I seriously considered dropping out of college because I was so just ashamed of the spectacle I'd become. I said um, in a post before that I became a punchline instead of a person. And I felt like that, like it was so painful. So I think that was the time where I started to kind of really just come to terms with, what we were dealing with here, what had, what had um, evolved into. And I didn't enter recovery or I didn't consider recovery seriously till 2016. So I graduated college in 2015 and I didn't like my last, like enough is enough moment. I call it my surrender moment was in January, 2016. So it was a very long process. And that's one thing too, that I always kind of like to touch on when it comes to addiction is For the most part, and I obviously can't speak for everyone, but for me, I knew that I had a problem for a very long time. Like it wasn't one of those things where you're just like, oh, you know, my life's in shambles, but you know, whatever. Like it was so, I was deeply hurting and I was deeply aware of the implications that my drinking was having. But it was one of those things where like it's addiction for a reason, like even any rational thought that comes with trying to control it or moderate it is just completely dissolved it seems like sometimes so that was my um those are my my three phases I call them where it just was a very slow burn yeah I
1: just wrote down those three phases (laughs) because that is I just love it it's really honest and I think that a lot of people listening to this episode need to think about where they're at Mm mm-hmm are you drinking recreationally? Are you drinking to cope or are you drinking to survive? And those go up incrementally in mm-hmm. severity, in lethality, in yeah, in in, in suffering
0: mm-hmm.
1: goes up in that. You've talked before about being scared to get sober because you are so used to the chaos. And that's a little bit about what you just said. What's your understanding of feeling more comfortable in chaos than not in chaos?
0: Yeah, no, that was a huge thing for me, especially because like you said, it just became such a part of my daily life. I think for me, the biggest thing, and I've had to do a lot of self-introspection on this because it's a very difficult question (laughs) to be totally honest. So I think the thing for me is I knew that rationally of course that you know a lack of chaos um was what i wanted but the thing was was when i got sober i would have to face myself and i would have to face the things i drank about you know like we said in my podcast okay. intro facing the things we numbed ourselves forget about Yeah. and a lot of things were a huge um drawing factor to drinking you know the trauma um, my need for validation for men, my perfectionist tendencies, um, shame, all this stuff. And I think a lot of people sometimes when they think of addiction, they think you're just only addicted to the substance. But for me um, and for many others, I'm guessing is you're addicted to the escape because a lot of people, when you you know go to rehab or you go to therapy for substance abuse, you don't necessarily talk about the drinking you know, or the using it's, it's just like they say, drinking is, but a symptom. Um, Mm -hmm. You end up talking about trauma and you end up talking about your family life. Um, So I think the biggest thing when I was scared to be sober, it was, I was scared. Like we said, with the perfectionist tendency of when you take that away, what's left. Um, Like my biggest fear was not being a person of substance and Mm -hmm. not having anything left pretty much when you took the chaos away. Yeah. It's so interesting that you
1: say it the way that you use the words that you use, because even before we started talking about, you know, we started getting into the alcohol use aspect of your life, addicted or not addicted yet. You talked about the perfectionistic tendencies and being afraid that you wouldn't be a person of substance before we started talking about substance, but then it was the substances literally externally. So it was like external substances, fulfilling the fear that you didn't have substance within without Mm -hmm. that, which is just so, uh, incredibly complex and so much easier said than experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, I I find myself being like, I'm so glad that you're like in recovery because it's just (laughs) like, I just, you know, I hear so many stories of people that just have similar stories to yours and they're not on this podcast talking about their sobriety right now. And so I think that it's just, I wanna honor the work that has gone into you being able to be where you're at today.
0: Thank you. And yeah, it's it's one of those things that is so just, you have to really kind of take a step back and realize what you've accomplished if you are sober or if you want to rec- recovery in general, because so many people don't make it, unfortunately. And it's one of those things where I always like to say that my recovery is a love letter to my younger self, because mm-hmm. there are so many things that I'm now addressing and healing from and acknowledging that my younger self was terrified of. Like she would see those mm-hmm. things and she would be like, this is too much. And it's one of those things where it, a lot of it is inner child work. Like a lot Mm. of it is very much like, okay, what did I need when I was younger? What did I not get? And why did I run to the substance that promised everything? So it was so, it's so, um, so fulfilling just to be able to talk recovery. And even if people listening aren't there yet, just to know that there is so much on the other side, I really do hope it gets to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I definitely do too. Um, I feel like, you know, we, we jumped, we jumped to recovery. Mm -hmm. There's one more question or I jumped to recovery. (laughs) (laughs) One more, one more question. I wanted to ask you when I was listening to your podcast, you mentioned counting calories. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand how someone can be counting calories and binge drinking at the same time. And so I'd love if you could talk a little bit about just what that was like for you, the struggles and yeah, just because it's such an interesting concept because there's so many calories and alcohol. So what was that like for
0: you? Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's a whole nother beast too in college, which I'd love to talk about. I ended up, um, so I went to school in Los Angeles, college in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you know this, but Los Angeles is a very image-based place. Um, There's a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of superficiality, um, which is really fun when you're, you know, an 18 year old woman and I literally was never self-conscious about my body until I went to Los Angeles, literally mm. never thought of it ever. And, um, cause I was, you know, playing volleyball, I had, you know, the metabolism of a teenager. Um, so I never really had to think about it. And that was the first time I started to gain weight, um, out of my, just, For in my understanding, there was no reason because I didn't understand like, oh, I'm binge drinking every weekend and I'm having all these drunk foods and all this stuff. Um, So I was just like, what is going on? So I never really um, participated in a diet before that. I really didn't understand healthy eating or calories or anything like that. But um, that was the age of Tumblr. And that was the age of, yeah, <laughs> I already see where this is going. And that was the age of just like the quote health blogs or whatever. So that was when I was like, okay, I can, and you know, it always goes back to control. Like, I can control this. I can mm. lose this weight while also drinking, you know, and men will love me because mm. tying in against the male validation, a lot of it was, okay, well, do guys still think I'm sexy? All this stuff. So I ended up being, I don't think I necessarily developed an eating disorder, but I definitely had a lot of disordered patterns where I would constantly count calories. Um, I would add them all up at the end of the day. I would just end up binge eating whatever because I was just so sick of the control. It was a very vicious cycle. And thankfully um, I did get introduced to weightlifting, which is still a very big part of my recovery to this day. Um, And it did teach me to focus on how strong I am, which is fantastic, but it definitely, was a huge struggle just being able to balance, you know, that gym life that I really did like and the the addiction, because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously if you are binge drinking a lot, it's going to add up. And I like, again, with the cognitive dissonance, just that whole, you know, I really enjoy lifting. I really enjoy seeing how strong I am, but alcohol is destroying my body but I can't, I don't want to give up either one. So it was a really big, just mind fuck of just learning how to um, just manage that. And it was such a relief when I went into sobriety, not necessarily because I got healthier. Like I still eat a shit ton of sugar because sugar <laughs> cravings, but it was one yeah. of those things. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, but it was one of those things where it just felt more in line with what I wanted, um, which was to break free of, you know, dieting to break free of having my mood based on how much I weighed that day. Um, and it was like a, a, a lot of people um, don't understand how much disordered eating and substance abuse are linked together because it all just like trying to find some sort of control because mm-hmm. I knew like, okay, my drinking is clearly out of control but I can control my diet. Um, so that's a huge thing. That was a part of my story as well that I really don't talk about that much but it's definitely something that I, I wanna address. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sort of
1: explaining it to a degree. so people can have some insight into what that's like they can review is this does this sound similar to me and the things that I'm doing or did do.
0: How long have you been in recovery? So I've been in recovery um, since January 2016, so a little bit over five years, um, but my actual sobriety date is May 20th, 2018. So I always like to say that just because um, I definitely did not get in the first try or the hundredth. And I think a lot of people when they hear, you know, sober transformations, whatever, they're like, oh, like it was just a before and after. It was so easy for them. Mm-hmm. It was not. Um, I definitely had many trials and errors. I had a trip to treatment for 28 days and I had one last relapse after that. Um, and I think it's really important to just acknowledge that, you um, you know, when it comes to sobriety and recovery, especially when you're dealing with addiction and addictive substances, it is not a one size fits all. And it's not a, you're going to get around the first try. Some people do, Mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. Like all the praise to them. But um, I always like to talk about the in-between period where you know that something is not working, but you just don't know if sobriety or recovery is right for you. Um, So for about, I want to say like, six months to a year, I was kind of in that in-between stage where I was like, okay, I know that drinking and I don't get along. I know that it caused more harm than good, but I still don't know how to be sober. I don't know how to live a sober life without feeling like I'm white knuckling it. So that took a lot of trial and error. That took a lot of um, learning from the recovery community, learning about how other people did it. And uh, yeah, so I I like answering that question because it's so easy to say, when did you get sober and be like, I got sober this Mm -hmm. and like, yay, good job. But I, I, I literally, um, let's see, that was two or three years in between deciding, okay, I want to be sober and then actually getting sober. Yes. I love
1: the honesty there. And it's so much more like, it's just more accurate. It's more truthful about what recovery usually looks like. There's two things that I want to ask you. One I just think your definition of this would be helpful to the listeners. And the mm-hmm. other is something that I've heard you say before. Um, I'm just going to ask them both and you can answer okay. them in any order. First one is on the first episode of your podcast, you said something that really stood out to me and mm-hmm. I don't even have it written down to talk to you about. It's <laughs> like, I just like remembered it. And I'm like, I have to ask her about this. It was, you said that people, and it's sort of similar to what you just said about being in sobriety and then having like that final sobriety date being different. You said people should be proud of the first time that they start to think that drinking may be a problem for them, that Mm -hmm. that door first opens. So I just wanted you to elaborate on that at all. And then totally unrelated, but I'm saying that both at the (laughs) same time, you kind of brought up a little bit about this. What is a, what is a quote unquote in the recovery community, a dry drunk what Mm -hmm. does that look like? Um, Yeah. So people can kind of gauge that. So two different things, whichever one you want to do first. Yeah.
0: I'll do my best to try to remember both.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) So the first one is uh, yeah. um, Being proud of the first moment you realize drinking might not be for you. Um, I think that is one of the most powerful things ever, because even if it doesn't change your behavior right then and there, it changes your perspective on things. So if you were someone who, um, you know, let's say, obviously I don't want to diagnose anyone, but like, say like, uh, you drink every night after work and you realize, huh, this, this is a, this doesn't feel right anymore. Then even if you, you know, don't necessarily change that behavior, you are able to look and say like, okay, well, what, what makes me want to drink after work? Is it stress? Is it winding down? And then you may, Look at how much you're spending on alcohol each week, and be like, "Wow, that is a lot of money. Like that could go towards, you know, the whatever that I've been, you know, wanting to buy." Um, And it just really shifts your perspective on things. Um, I kind of have heard it seen said, or I've heard it said being like kind of broken out of a matrix sort of thing, where you just look around, you're like, "Is anyone else like? Does anyone else feel (laughs) not like this isn't right?" Um, So that's one thing I always like to really commemorate when people like have that first awakening moment, I guess you could say of, Hey, this isn't working out for me because that is the first step to being open to opportunities to change. Um, so when I started to really, you know, consider sobriety, you know, beforehand, if I saw anything even mentioning sobriety, being like, eh, that's not for me. Like that's nah, I'm good. But when you realize, or when you are open to it and you're like, huh, like that might be a sign you know, like whether or not you believe in, you know, divine timing or divine intervention, anything like that. It just is one of those things where it is so powerful because it opens you up so much more to be willing to look for change, even if you're not quote ready for it yet. And then the definition of a dry drunk is really, um, really funny to me because mm-hmm. I, I, know that some people, dr- or they stop drinking purely for just, they don't want to drink anymore. And so in that case, um, I really don't think that's a dry drunk. If you're just quitting just because you're like, I just don't want to do anymore. And that's totally, totally cool. I wish more people were cool with doing that. If they didn't mm. want to drink, they just don't drink. But yeah. um when I hear the word or the phrase dry drunk, um normally what it's, it's defined as is if someone just quits drinking and thinks that that's all they need to do. You know, like that was very true for me where I was like, okay, well I'm just going to stop drinking and then everything's going to magically fall into place. And then you don't change anything else about your life. Like maybe if you have a group of friends that drink all the time, you still want to hang out with them or you, um, like your social life just happens to revolve a lot around drinking and you're like, no, I can white knuckle it. I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't take time to address like, okay, well, what are my triggers? When do I feel like I want to drink the most? What was I drinking about if that's the Mm case? Um, So I think that's a really big thing that um, especially for people that are new to sobriety, they think like, okay, well, if I just take away this one thing out of the equation, then everything will be good. Um, And obviously, you know, it's individualized, but I think that's a very important thing to remember is that obviously you don't have to get your shit together all at once, but it really (laughs) is important to remember that besides the obvious physical symptoms or physical cravings, a lot of it is not drinking in itself. You know, it's, it's another sort of craving or another sort of, um, just escape, I guess, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does. Yeah.
1: You definitely touched on where I was hoping that you would go. It's like, there is more work to be done than just removing the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the questions that you just said during that was like, why did I want to drink like that in the first place? Like you have to figure out why, because then, even if you don't figure out your triggers, you know which are separate than the reason why they might be the same. But sometimes mm-hmm. they're separate. Then you could easily return to it because you don't change the why or get to know the why.
0: What are your favorite parts of recovery? Oh man, well, one thing is the people that you meet. Um, there are so many people that I would have never been able to connect with had I not been in the recovery world, um, and I owe a lot of that to Instagram. Like I started my account probably. 5 years ago I started very early in recovery like right after I decided to try sobriety. And to be honest, I really didn't think it was going to be I thought it was just going to be like a mini diary of like oh like this how I'm feeling today and sobriety I guess it's cool whatever. And then like the more that you talk about it and the more you actually delve into the sobriety Instagram community, you meet so many different people that you listen to their stories and you're like holy shit, like (laughs) other people think this or other people do this. And it's so like, there's really no other relationship or just refreshing connection than someone who gets it. Um, I have a lot of friends that still drink and I'm totally cool with that. But when you meet someone that has been in recovery or has just endured the whatever that has gone to the point, there's just such a mutual understanding and respect of, Hey, we got through whatever we did and we came out the other side. Like that Mm. is so cool. Um, So I think a huge thing that I love about recovery is just listening to people's stories and just listening to what they, how they pay it forward. If they choose to do that, like some people do podcasts like these, some people do um, you know, work in their community, all that stuff. Um, so definitely the people, the people is my favorite part. I love that. Yeah. The recovery community is beautiful.
1: It's like, well, I mean, there's people in every community (laughs) where you're like, uh, I don't think you're going to be a part of my recovery, but more often than not, it's people who have healed themselves to a degree. So Mm -hmm. I love that you said that for the listeners who are thinking, wow, maybe I'm not drinking recreationally. Maybe I'm drinking to cope. Maybe I'm drinking to survive. What were one or two of the things that helped you the most
0: when you first started getting sober? Um, Well, the first thing I always tell people is to tell someone. Um, It doesn't have to be, you know, your parents or, you know, your partner or whatever, just someone. Um, Because I think the biggest thing that kind of, sabotaged my recovery for a long time was keeping things to myself Um, because it was one of those things where you can justify like, well, no one knows about this, so I can let it pass or, you know, it's just me who knows, so I'm not hurting anyone. Um, So that's a huge thing. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a bunch of people all at once, like, you know, in you decide when you want to tell people you're sober. Um, But that's the first thing I always say is just tell someone that you trust. Um, because even if they can't, if they, if they don't fully understand, there's that sense of accountability. Um, and then the second thing I would say is to find resources. Um, we are very lucky to live in a digital age where there are Instagrams, podcasts, books, um, meetings. If, um, they're around your area, if that's your thing, there's so many different forms of just learning and, uh, even if storytelling, like I always say, storytelling is all shame. So if you hear a story that's similar to you, it's so powerful to be able to at least say, okay, well, I'm not the only one going through this and they um, got through it too. So maybe I can as well. Um, so those are the biggest things I always like to say is number one, just have someone for accountability um, and two, uh, dive into resources. Even if you aren't 100% sure if is for you, there is nothing wrong with, um, at least just testing the waters and seeing how other people have done it. Yes, I love that.
1: Thank you so much. and And for those of you who are thinking, hmm, maybe I do want to test the waters, <laughs> go ahead and do a Google search of being sober curious and mm-hmm. just dive right into everything that that says. Uh, you mentioned resources. I think you are an extremely valuable resource for people that are, want to enter sobriety or are in sobriety. So where can they, where can the listeners learn more about
0: you and find what you have to offer? Yes, so my main and um, resource, I guess, is Instagram. So I'm shots to shakes, uh, one word. And I also have a podcast that I'm going to try to upload more often. I took a little break, but it's called after the blackout and that should be easy because uh, I definitely was the queen of blackouts for a very long time. (laughs) And yeah, those are my two main ones. Um, I post a lot of resources in my stories, um, amplifying other recovery initiatives and just whole other stuff. It's really fun. I love that.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here, Rachel. It was an honor to have you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And to close out the episode, like I always do for my listeners, my name is Dr. Courtney Tracy. You know me on the internet as the truth doctor. And the truth is, first of all, you've got to stop not listening to your inner voice and do yourself a favor and see if it tells you if you are drinking recreationally, drinking to cope or drinking to survive. Now you all know that I love providing you free mental health content, really free anything that can help your body, mind, and spirit in order to keep this podcast free and to support the incredible work that my production team is putting onto the back end of this show. This podcast is sponsored by NAMI Orange County and their podcast. It's okay to feel NAMI Orange County is a nonprofit organization based in Orange County, California, whose mission is to provide quality mental health, education, resources, and advocacy at no cost. They've created the It's Okay to Feel podcast for youth ages 16 to 24 to provide free mental health education and reduce stigma. If you're someone who listens to my podcast and you know of someone that could use a more clinical-based, youth-oriented podcast, then I highly recommend that you refer them to NAMI Orange County's podcast for transitional youth. They also offer peer support programs that all of Orange County, California residents can access by calling this number, 714 544 8488 or visiting namioc.org. You can listen to It's Okay to Feel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Truth Doctor podcast with Dr. Courtney Tracy. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. See you in the next episode.